When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of After Impact. Agent Smith is not here today, so I'm filling in. Some of you yeah, may buddy. know me, some of you may not know me. Uh, I go by Dr. Vanessa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> damn right you do. <laughs> it always feels so weird for me to say it. When other people say it, I'm like, yeah, yeah that's me, that's me. Yeah. But I'm going to say it now. Uh, so uh, today, Tom and I are going to be discussing our most current uh, interview. Well, not ours, but Tom's with Jason Maiden. Uh, we have lots to say about him and lots to unpack. So, uh, and just a reminder, uh, if this content is adding any value to you, uh, we only ask that you share whatever you have to say and your thoughts to the community. So uh, I guess we're going to just dive right in and talk about Mr. Maiden. There it is. And yes. to give you guys just like a little bit uh, of a preamble, Dr. Finesse and I were just talking about doing a Tom and Dr. Finesse hour of some mm-hmm. kind, pop culture related around movies and space, mm. which that could be interesting. So mm-hmm. definitely drop in your thoughts. Let us know. Uh, we're going to be building out a whole bunch of um, media-focused content in the very near future, uh, building out a new set, which I'm very excited about. Uh, so yeah, we will see where that ends up. But that would be a lot of fun. I think that's going to be great. Um, so first and for- foremost, uh, one of the first things you said in the interview um, you said that he's a modern-day Lucius Fox. J- Jason Maiden is a modern-day Lucius Fox. And um, I guess if you could describe to the audience, because some people may not know who Lucius Fox is, describe who he is and why Jason Maiden is a modern-day Lucius Fox. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. He actually calls himself the modern-day Lucius Fox, okay. which I loved. And that was why I wore the Batman T-shirt that uh-huh. day on set. Um, he's really into comic books and... I think partly because he's so artistic, that may have been what drew him in the beginning uh, to the world of comic books. And then obviously we gravitate towards characters that resonate with us in some way. So Lucius Fox is the CEO of Wayne Enterprises, also happens to be African-American. And he's played by Morgan Freeman in the movies. And Lucius knows that Bruce Wayne is actually Batman. So he's one of the very small number of people that knows And he's the one that leverages Wayne Industries, I think it's technically Wayne Enterprises, Mm -hmm. leverages Wayne Enterprises to create like the Batmobile and all that stuff. So that's all Lucius behind the scenes. Um, I think the reason that Jason considers himself the modern day Lucius Fox is because he takes a concept and knows how to make it real. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I really, really found interesting about him. And he talks about this in the episode is it's not enough to draw a pair of shoes. So Jason was saying, look, I can draw, but that's not the same as designing. Designing has intent behind it. Designing is going after an audience trying to solve a particular problem. And so 
he goes through in the episode of how he breaks it down. So if our like um, BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal is to uh, basically mimic, um, I, oh God, what did he call it? Flight or lift dynamics or something like that. I forget the exact phrase he was talking about as like their grand vision. And he says, how does that really translate, like really translate down to a shoe? And if it's the quick first step, and that's going to be our parallel using the analogy of flight, then how do we actually get to that? Is it reducing the weight? Is it finding um, lower weight, higher strength um, items like spider silk and things like that? And then where in the world are they actually best in class at dealing with spider silk so that we can actually get it put into the shoes? And that was something that I really, really enjoyed about Phil Knight's book, Um, about founding Nike and how often he was traveling to manufacturing plants. And as somebody with a manufacturing background, like that's where this all gets really, really interesting. And that's why I love him referring to himself as a modern day Lucius Fox, because Lucius Fox is execution. Mm -hmm. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where taking that high level concept, which is where most people stop, they pacify themselves with a dream. They never move on to doing the hard work of actually going how do I take this drawing of a shoe and really turn it into something? Is that my wife with an alarm going up? <laughs> like, did that really just happen? <laughs> all right, we're all going to have to heckle her at the end of the show. Because normally she'd be the one having a seizure on anybody for like, your phones. Uh, so that, that to me is, is the juice, man. Like when people know how to execute, mm-hmm. that's everything. I've heard you say execution matters. Um, so I hope you've heard me say only execution matters. Oh, yes, matters. yes. Correction, only execution matters. Yes. Now, uh, so Jason refers to himself as a modern-day Lucius Fox. Um, I'm going to loosely refer to him as a modern-day Jesse Jackson. And I mean Jesse Jackson from, like, the 70s and the early 80s. Because one of my earliest memories is sitting around watching the news with my mom in the late 70s. And seeing this man talk about empowerment and motivation and what have you, and he would rhyme. And even if he wasn't really? rhyming, he would put his words together. And mm. I remember thinking, like, man, this guy sounds like someone off of Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a cool way. I'm like, he right. just put his words together so eloquently. And, mm. and did he just rhyme? And, and I know Jason didn't quite rhyme, uh, but it's the way he constructed his words. They yeah. hit home. And looking at the comments uh, on YouTube, I'm seeing that people like, well, this quote here, this quote here. And um, one of the first ones that stood out to me was when you're tested, you're given the ability to give a testimony. You can't have a testimony without a test. And I remember when we were watching it while you guys were taping, I was like, oh, (laughs) and I looked at you and I was like, he's going to say something about it. And you're like. Are you a rapper (laughs) or whatever? Do you like hip hop? Yeah. So any, first of all, any quotes, uh, did any of the quotes stand out for you? And what's your comment on him and how he puts his words together? I really need to write them down because I would do a disservice to try to remember them now. And Mm -hmm. I threw out a couple in the episode, but I was struck by that. Not, not only when I was researching him, but Mm -hmm. live there on set, because I had, I didn't take a note on like, oh man, this guy should be a hip hop artist or anything. But as he was talking and I was experiencing it in a way that I wasn't when it was just research, I was like, God, like this, like, I didn't think Sesame Street, that's a way cooler uh, way, (laughs) but I was like, legitimately, one thing I think a lot about is in a parallel universe, I become a hip hop artist. Mm-hmm. Because I love language so much 
And so, and, and I'll float this out into the universe. I took um, a note probably almost a year ago now. I want to work with a producer to turn like what I'm doing impact quotes is phase one of what I would love to see, which is essentially spoken word over like real music that's been composed for that. So right now we, I do the impact quote in a bubble, which by the way, those are done in a single take. We just fucking burn through it. Um, And then the music, we try to find something that sort of matches and sort of goes, but I would love to do something that's, that's really all condensed um, and, and really done together. And so when he was doing that, I was like, whoa, like this guy has taken a real step towards that. Like the way he talks in real time, I feel like I should be writing music mm-hmm. to like go with just <laughs> yeah. like his normal talk. Yeah, exactly. So, and it, because of that becomes more memorable, like to give you an idea, he, like you said, he wasn't rhyming, but this will give you an idea cognitively of what the brain does when it finds language that has like a meter to it. Okay. Things that rhyme are perceived to be something like 70% more true. Like, think about that. I could tell you a lie, but if it rhymes, it just seems more true. And the same, I believe, even though the study was specifically on rhyming, I think they would find the same things with, like, cadence. So, um, the only... To have a testimonial, you have to be tested, right? Like, there's just a a balance to that statement. Yeah. So, there's there's, um, uh, rhythm... There's uh, the number of syllables. Like if you actually listen to a lot of rap songs, you'll notice they, it doesn't actually rhyme. But the, the symbol or the syllable count that they've created allows there to be a rhythm yeah. even though there's no rhyme. And so it still feels right. And when people have a, a, an ability to bring that into language, that's when it gets really, really interesting. And now, do you remember... I, I'm not sure sort of what the political correctness of, of this statement is, but when I was in high school, I talked a lot about Ebonics. Mm-hmm. And like, what is the vibe on that, by the way? Ebonics? Is that like horrifying oh to say that? The funny thing is, it's a term I have not heard in forever. I actually forgot about that term, but hey, it was a legit term right? Like it was back when we were in high school. A big thing. So yeah. <laughs> when you and I are in high school, it was like Ebonics was the thing. And there was this group of um, African-Americans in my school, and they used language in a way I found so incredible. And I remember thinking, the phrase that I kept thinking was, they have more fun with language than I do. Mm-hmm. And I was legitimately jealous of the unique phrases that they would make, that they would change like the tense of something. Mm-hmm. So they would use like an incorrect tense or much instead of many, but it sounded better. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wow, like, much like the French language, like their only rule is sound good. Mm-hmm. That's, that was the vibe that I got. <laughs> and so I always found that fascinating. And that's what I love about hip hop is they prioritize rhythm. They prioritize balance. They prior, like they'll change the pronunciation of a word to make it rhyme. Mm-hmm. And you like it mm-hmm. better because they've changed it. Oh, yeah. So anyway, I could go on a diatribe on that forever. But I have a secret fantasy of doing that with impact quotes. Jason Maiden, in real time, more than any human being I've ever met in my life, did that. Where there was just like, I wanted to believe and live by the words he was saying just because they sounded Mm -hmm. so right. You're right. There was a cadence. And to your remark about uh, hip hop and their language, it's over the course of the last 20, 30 years... 
it's invaded our vernacular. Mm. And I hear people, even just a common businessman, would say something and not even know where the phrase came from. Right. You know what I mean? And I'd be like, that's from a particular song. Um, in hip hop, in particular, it's, it's, there's so many. I mean, I can we can go on and on about that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's that's fascinating and uh, about the rhyming thing. And even when you don't rhyme, uh, just the way you put the words together, because whatever got his cadence and the way he put his words together, it made me listen. And I've noticed people uh, remarking about that. Mm. Um, really so, fast, can we just derail on this a little bit more? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so. I've been a fan of hip hop for a very, very long time. You and I have talked about like yep. early '80s hip hop, which yeah. is when I really got into the scene. Again, drawn to it because of language. I I don't have synesthesia, but I believe that those things. So synesthesia, for anybody that doesn't know, is a mixing of the senses. The most common form of synesthesia is number color. So the number seven is always red. The number three is always blue. And because they have mm. a, another sense associated with that they can they can memorize like they're one of the most famous number color synesthetes um also is he's a number color shape synesthete and he at one point i don't know if he still does but at one point he had um the record for the most numbers of pi memorized something like twenty-five thousand digits how's that possible it's crazy, right? It took him something like 18 hours just to go through them. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and because of those associations, he has an easier time with remembering numbers and okay. doing complex math in his head. Um, Vladimir Nabokov is one of the most famous authors who was a synesthete. Mm-hmm. And he English was his fifth language. And if you've ever read a book by Nabokov that he wrote natively in English, you'll realize, okay, this guy in his fifth language knows English better than I do, like (laughs) by a lot. It's actually kind of demoralizing, especially for me as somebody who fancies himself a writer. Uh So while I I am not a synesthete, I do think that it's a spectrum. And and I would bet that Jason is, is along the spectrum like I am, where words have texture to me. So um, I'll give you a really easy example. Okay. The word bubble feels right, right? Yeah. Like if I say bubble to you, you don't think anything sharp. Like even if you did, no. and they've, they've done this experiment where they'll, they'll give you two made up words. Okay. So it's not like bubble, which you can already envision because you've seen bubbles in your life, but they can do this with made up words okay. and they'll ask people, which one of these is sharp? Which one of these is round? And it's like 93% of people will pick the same word, even when it's totally made up. Uh. So I have a very extreme sense of words having textures, of feeling a certain way, of actually like bouncing or moving or having more velocity. So like when I'm writing my intros, um, in fact, I just, one that I wrote yesterday for Noah Galloway, the, I focused the language on velocity. I wanted it to have speed hmm. and because of what he had been through. And so I wanted to convey that. So it's like, when when you begin to tap into a language at a different level, I think you're able to affect people on sort of an invisible plane. And that's where Jesse Jackson, that's where Jason Maiden, like they're bringing some of those techniques to the real world, okay. which I am, I think is super powerful. And when I think about Jason, I really think this guy's got a shot. If- 
You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If he can succeed in business, I think he's got a shot of being the mayor, which he talks about in the episode. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that the thing that will empower him the most is his ability to affect people on an emotional, visceral level with language. Mm. Wow. I mean, again, it's one of those things you take for granted because you think about some of our uh, most amazing speakers in history. Uh, they choose their words wisely. They say certain words. They do certain gestures. They, and they, you know, they, put, they construct their sentences mm. in a certain way. Um, and I remember, God, you know, even Obama, like even before anyone knew who he was, uh, for the most part, outside of Washington when he was at the Democratic National Convention. And afterwards, everyone was like, who is that guy who spoke? Right. Uh, uh, we went there uh, for Tavis. We went there to show and pull people aside and interview them. And that was the first time, I believe, that Tavis had interviewed him. I didn't think he had interviewed him before. But that was one of the first things that I thought about with him. I was like, man, the way this guy is putting his words together. And, and it was like almost like jazz. Because if you ever hear jazz, always... The thing about jazz, people say, like, it's all over the place. And I know, like, I've heard your comments on jazz, too. <laughs> but you'll hear any jazz aficionado say, no, no, you got to listen in between the notes. It's the notes in between the notes. Right. And I remember forever, I was like, how does that mean, the notes between the notes? Uh, but as, the more and more I listen to jazz and understand jazz, I get it. And I feel like people like Obama, and I can think of several other people, they treat how they talk like jazz. Because it's not just the words, it's the pauses that he has and the space between the words and the sentences that he makes. And we all know that about Obama. He'll be talking and he'll stop and then kind of put something <laughs> out again. And you'd be like, oh! <laughs> like it makes you bounce. So right. it's so interesting to hear you say that. And I didn't think about that. Here I am thinking like, oh, Jason Maiden is just a, a smooth talker, which he is, of course. But... He clearly uh, knows what he's doing with how he's putting his words together. And you as a speaker and going around doing these gigs and gigs like it's music, uh, but going around and speaking, uh, clearly you understand that too more than the average person. And that's one of those things I think people take for granted. And even in this moment while you're telling me, I was like, man, I've been taking that for granted. Mm. So that's amazing. Yeah, language is, language is insanely powerful. And some of, like you were saying, back in the day when the only way you could reach a mass audience was public speaking. Mm. So people had to get really good at that. Um, I, I miss that a little bit. I miss that there was um, just being able to give a talk that was enrapturing, that was captivating, was a way for people to mm. really get people going behind them. Because I think that... Um, when you are a good communicator, that's going to serve you either on a mass scale or a small scale, your ability to get people around a shared vision, which is one of the things that makes a great orator. Um, and that's not something I think uh, people spend a lot of time on. But when I think about of my way more than 10,000 hours of practice that I put into communication mm -hmm. behind the scenes, and I think other than this interview, I don't think I've ever talked this much about um, my obsession with words and the way that I think about language and how much time and energy I put into practicing it, looking up words when I don't know them, trying to extend my vocabulary. Um, I am—I very much steal from um, any group that I think is having fun with language. Mm -hmm. So an obsession I had when I was in England was Cockney rhyming slang. <laughs> and like that, all of that stuff is, is really, really fascinating. Okay. And I think that... So I believe intelligence is built, not just um, given at birth, but I, I really, really believe that one's ability to effectively and strategically use language pauses, inflection, all of that um, is a sign of where your intellect is. And that's why we, we find ourselves drawn to people that can really like crawl inside our minds and just grab yeah. a hold of us. Wow. 
And we're, we're, look, we're an animal that learned to pass on culture, which is how like knowledge stacks so rapidly um, through language. And so we're, we are an animal attuned to language. Even the way that our ears work and the frequency that we hear in is all around speech. It's designed to capture like the vocal range that we speak in. So um, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot there. And now I'm really, I'm being super indulgent, but I, I hope people follow some of these threads on their own. Jeffrey Canada, who I've talked a lot about, and hopefully oh, yeah. one day will be on this show. Yeah, I'm trying. He would be fantastic. Would be amazing. Yeah. And his whole thing about looking at what actually, what is it mechanistically that makes somebody who grows up in the inner cities have a harder time being successful than somebody who grows up in a middle-class family. And when he just cut through all the BS and realized it's the number of words you hear by the age of five. The, oh, really? The number, the number of words you hear by the age of five and the ratio of positive to negative. That's it. He said everything boils down to that. And that's when he said the most heartbreaking thing I've ever heard, which is I gave up on adults. And now I just look for women who are pregnant or may become pregnant, and I teach them about reading to your kids wow. and about that ratio. And it's supposed to be 70% positive to 30% negative. And he wow. said in the inner cities, it's not only do they hear mil- – it's something like the, – the numbers are approximate, uh-huh. but it's something like 5 million words in a middle-class household by the time you're – and full disclosure, it was either 3 or 5. I think it's 5. But 5 million words by the time they're 5 – and 70% are positive, 30% are negative. In the inner cities, it's 3 million words by the time they're five, and it's 70% negative and only 30% positive. And he said that the disruptive effect, or not even disruptive, but the, the way that it stops their language centers from forming, he said, is the real problem. And then as you get older, you can't articulate yourself well. Yes. And he was like, it's... That is the problem. He said it really is that simple. Like the ability to communicate is so foundational that without it, you're in real trouble. And then that makes complete sense. And I, and I agree. And wow, that's, a, that's an amazing stat. I have to look more into that. Get um, him on the show. I'll go, I'll go hella deep with him. <laughs> um, okay, well, on that note, uh, Jason, uh, he mentioned that uh, some of the greatest entrepreneurs uh, come out of being... Uh, you know, part of the disenfranchise. I love this. And yeah, and that to me was just, it, it made sense. Because I mean, I'll start by saying, not that, you know, that bitter guy who always thought, that, oh, everyone who's rich and, and has something going on for them, uh, it was passed on, it's nepotism, they got a spoon right. in their mouth. But, you know, the older I got, the more I, I started learning more about entrepreneurs and just even the entrepreneurs who come through here. It's amazing how many of them, Naveen Jain, you know what I mean, John Paul DeJoria. I mean, the list goes on. People who are part of the disenfranchise and the differences, they apply themselves and they use that as the hustle to move forward. And I just wonder what your thoughts were on that. Oh, let's go deep. Now we're really <laughs> going to fucking derail. I love this so much. I'm so glad that Jason brought it up. So have you ever heard the phrase T-shirt to T-shirt in three generations? No. All right. This just gave me the chills. So... The, the notion is generation one starts in a t-shirt having to work their ass off. They're oftentimes, certainly when this phrase came about, they were immigrants. Okay. So the immigrant parents come here, their, you know, their kids are wearing t-shirts because they can't afford anything else. The kids see in, in human work ethic because the people that leave their country 
they're brave, quite frankly, right? Yeah. You're going somewhere sure. totally yeah. unknown. And a hundred years ago, like you can imagine going to the new world, a big city, like you had to cross the ocean. A lot of people died just in the yeah. journey. <laughs> and then getting here, you, you probably knew nobody. You knew that you were going to be the immigrant class. So there's going to be a lot of hatred, a lot of prejudice against you. And you were going to have to rise up just through blood, sweat, and tears. Their kids see that. So the kids are the ones now that end up becoming successful and i mean so we're we have to acknowledge that the the inner cities eat most people okay it just mm. it's an absolutely destructive force but the people who make it through that insane pressure cooker the people that have it hard the people that have to suffer when they come out the other side they're extraordinary because they've been tested, they can give their testimonial, right? So mm -hmm. that yeah. pressure cooker really turns certain coals into diamonds. And then they go on to do something extraordinary. But their kids now have grown up affluent. Mm. They don't go through the same pressure cooker. And everybody, and this is the thing that scares me to death about being a parent. I know your every impulse is to make Ellison's life as easy as possible. Yeah. For it to be happy yeah. and filled with joy and to never know sadness. But now let's get really fucking esoteric and let's talk about the Buddha. If you know the story of the Buddha, he was the prince. He was the son of the king. They, or he may not have been the son of the king. He was son of either the king or a very wealthy person. Okay. He lived inside this palace, never went outside. His father wanted to protect him from seeing suffering. And because of all of that, he basically is not living a human experience he finally gets out he sees suffering for the first time it totally radically changes his world hmm. and in that he ends up becoming the buddha because he wants to end suffering and to do that he has to really understand suffering so it's like trying to remove people from the situation is to deny the very thing that's going to toughen them up right and so what does the buddha do he goes hard in on suffering fasting living this totally hmm. monk life mm -hmm. isolated life to figure this stuff out, but he has to go through the difficulties. The absolute same thing is true whether you're talking about, um, God, take, uh, I always return to, to just growing up in the inner cities. It's such a, a poignant example in, in the modern context. Jay-Z, um, yeah. uh, Dr. Dre, which if you watch, you've seen the documentary, yes. right? The oh, Defiant yes. Ones, yeah. go watch The Defiant Amazing. Ones. Um, absolutely Phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. So interesting to see Jimmy Iovine yeah. um, juxtapose with Dr. Dre yeah, and like cool how, how the different ways each of them learned their lessons and just really, really powerful. Um, Eminem, like all these people that go through th this insane hardship, but it's what makes them great because they know like I've got to get fucking extraordinary at something mm. to get out. Right. And Jay-Z's story to me is, is the sort of the best of all of them of somebody who doesn't set out to be a rapper. He sees a path to get out through hustling, through drug dealing. He takes it, realizes this is maybe not a great path, starts doing music, realizes, Jesus, that's an even bigger dead end than <laughs> um, doing selling drugs, goes back to selling drugs. Mm -hmm. But then because he had gone hard on it for a minute, people knew how good he was. Mm -hmm. And so then they're, they're like just constantly going after him. Like, come on, come on, come on, come on. You've got to come back into this. And then obviously we know the rest of the story. And, and it isn't a surprise to me that given the hardship that he had to go, the man shot his own brother, <laughs> right? Yeah. So like, and hearing him talk about how like he was thinking in his head, please don't make me shoot you. Like those, those hardships going through things like that, having to live a life 
where it, it's even a thought to shoot your own brother because you have to draw such a brutal line in the sand to not be taken advantage of in such a doggy dog environment. Utterly astonishing. Same thing with James Maiden, right? Sees his friend up close get shot in the face, if mm, I'm not mistaken. I mean, just like mm-hmm. crazy. Like thinking about that people actually grow up like that's absolutely nuts. But it it pushed Jason to say, I'm getting out. And the only path that I see is to become extraordinary at something. So putting people through that difficulty really turns them into something. Some people, right? But you need that pressure cooker. So going back to t-shirt to t-shirt in three generations. So generation one, they're in the pressure cooker. And to get out, a small number of them become extraordinary because they're just hell-bent to get out and they realize the only way is to be so good that people can't ignore you. Mm. Then -hmm. their kids grow up with no hardship. Their parents are trying to protect the life out of them. And in wanting to protect them, they actually do them a disservice. And one of the reasons that Lisa and I have chosen not to have kids is I don't want to have to do that. Yeah. I don't want to have to put somebody through. It's, it, I know it's necessary, and I can think of nothing worse. Yeah. So because they don't grow up with any hardship, they're never formed into the diamond. It never crystallizes their own thinking. It never forces them. Because this is just the truth of the human psyche. When you feel worthless, when you feel stupid, when you feel inadequate, you either accept your fate, which most people do, Mm -hmm. or you push back. And one of the greatest, in fact, I'll quote another um, impact theory royalty, David Goggins. Oh, yes. And he said, the best thing that ever happened to me is nobody came to help me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, The best thing that ever happened to me, no one came to help me. And then he realized, I have to do it. And I think when you look, I I had the same realization, right? I didn't go through his hardships, not by any stretch of the imagination. Mine was a personal battle of feeling stupid. And I realized nobody's coming to help me. Like, I have to find a way out of this. And what I began to dissect was what is the nature of self-esteem? And when I realized that I could build my self-esteem around something other than already being great, that, that changed everything in my life. So, but it only happened because I remember laying on the, laying on the floor of my apartment with my face pressed against the carpet, being like, I'm a fucking bozo. Mm. I, I felt like I'd failed at film school. I had a dead-end job. This was, mm. I was selling video games. <laughs> and I was like, where am I going? I was the self-proclaimed king of remedial jobs, but part of me knew that was really fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, where is this all going? And if I hadn't been that low, where it's like, there, there's literally nowhere to go but up. I never, it wouldn't, I never would have been forced to like think my way out of the problem. So I'm grateful for that. Mm. I'm grateful that I felt dumb mm. and inadequate and that my life was going to end up like I felt like Solieri. I was just smart enough to realize how dumb I was. And that I, I secretly wished, like, couldn't I have been a little dumber or a little bit smarter, but to put me right in this zone where I felt like I'm condemned to see how good it could be if I were smarter and not dumb enough to just be arrogant. Like mm-hmm. when you meet like the really arrogant people who just seem like they're just so stoked on where they are, yeah. it's like, dude, you're not very good, but you seem totally blind to that. Fact. Yeah. And uh-huh. so there was, and it's foolish. I recognize that now, but I was envious of people like that that didn't seem to have anxiety. Nothing, like they were just Mm. blindly moving forward. Mm. 
So because I had that, it pushed me. Because Jason had the difficulties that he had, it pushed him. Because Eminem, because Jay-Z, right? Like yeah. they, they all go through this. And so they, they end up having a chance at real greatness. So uh, first generation makes the money, second generation spends the money, and then the third generation's back in a t-shirt because there's nothing left. And there's <laughs> been no lessons passed on to them. Yeah. And so your only hope then is that that generation feels as frustrated as the first generation felt that built something and they've got a chance to build something anew. So t-shirt to t-shirt in three generations, um, you have to build difficulty into somebody's life. You can't uh, want to isolate them and put them in a bubble because that's not the way the human animal works. We respond to stressors and from the stressors, from the tearing the tearing down of the muscle, the muscle is then rebuilt. But you have to have that stimulus of of pain and suffering and destruction like that's the only way that some and this is why it's terrifying and this may be what i always found fascinating about harry potter people die in harry potter yeah, yeah. right mm-hmm. like that was one thing i actually respected about that series i was like all right you're not safe in the harry potter universe <laughs> yeah. right like there are real consequences and so you have to acknowledge that that's why it's so terrifying in life because yeah. like maybe the more you think about it, you'd be like, I actually want Ellison to, to suffer and not always be great and to be put in these difficult situations, but you're never going to send him to um, the outback in yeah. Australia yeah. to like, well, I hope nothing gets you, but <laughs> man, if you come back, right? Like, do you know, I don't know if this is actually true, but the, the, certainly the legend of Spartica is that if a baby seemed weak, they would just put it on a hillside. It's like, well, if it survives, then it's tough and, and we know all is well. And if it doesn't, then it, they nuts. were weak and it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, that's nuts. I, I would definitely definitely never have the power to do that. Let's put the baby out there. Actually, maybe in the first three months when it was ridiculous <laughs> and hard. I was like, get this baby out of here. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I do want, I mean, that, like, you went really deep on that. So, it made me think about a couple other things. Um, so, for the disenfranchised, the people who, who've had it hard and, you know, pull themselves up and get out of there, get out of their situation and become, you know, even greater than they could even imagine. Uh, what about um, the bulk of the folks? Because it still seems to be a small percentage. How do we, and I'm not expecting you to, you know, solve Expect the problem. It. I like it. Okay, Set it up hard. How do we solve that problem for the, for the masses? You know what I mean? For the people who feel like they're worthless, for the people who feel like they're at a dead-end life, who just can't get out of that situation. That's what that's what I wonder about, you know? Christopher, A, I'm super excited that you're asking that question and that you're doing it legitimately. It's not a setup. B, I'm horrified that you um, that I have done such a bad job communicating the mission of this company that you don't realize that is Fire. the question that I asked myself, saying, no bullshit, what would it take to reach people? Because the problem is mindset. Their frame of reference is so askew that they can't see that the answer is they need a different operating system. And apps are easy. Operating systems are hard. And most people in life, they try to give you an app. So your operating system is, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I could never do this, I'm not good enough. It's water, right? That's why I use the analogy of the operating system. Like, you never think of interacting with the operating system. The yeah. operating system is what allows you to run all the other stuff. But if the operating system has a problem, everything else is going to have a problem. Mm. So, but the operating system is so ubiquitous that it becomes water. 
And that's what you have to, and by that I'm talking about David Foster Wallace's concept of this is water, the fish is the last one to realize that they are in water, that humans had to discover air, that it's so ever present that you you just don't even think about it. Or gravity, we had to discover gravity. It's so present and ubiquitous that you don't even realize it's a thing. Mm -hmm. So in human beings, that operating system, that water, is your mindset. It is your core belief system. Um, Einstein said, the most important decision any human being will ever make is whether or not the universe works for you or against you. And I think his actual words were, it's a hostile or friendly universe. Um, We all have to decide. We decide it because neither is objectively true. You just decide, am I optimistic or am I pessimistic? Or in uh, Agent Smith's, Smith's case he's cautiously optimistic <laughs> cop out right. city cop out city um, but that's like we all have to make that decision yeah, right so yeah. when i look at the masses and i say okay how do we pull this off the answer is how do you change the water they they cannot need to be aware of the change okay if they can't need to be aware of the change what are the elements that make up their mindset their parents their environment those are the biggest So the only way to change the parents is by changing the water. So sort of in Jeffrey Canada's language, I give up on the adults, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I consider myself a filtering mechanism for adults. There are some that are going to immediately respond to the notions and they'll grab them and gravitate. And then some are just going to be, I know that if I can get the next generation, that those kids will ultimately become the next generation of parents. And so now you've got the parents, just the next generation. So it goes like this. The way that we construct the environmental um, water is through narrative. It's through all the cultural stories that we pass on. Uh, What are the five dominant forms of narrative? They are books, comic books, TV shows, movies, and video games. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that we're influencing that world. Um, And I'm tempted to put music in there. People talk a lot about music. And maybe I'm just setting it aside because I don't have yet an intention to be involved in that. Or maybe because I think that music is actually drawing so heavily from those other five that I'm better off putting my energies there. But I I will merely point out, look how many um, songs reference um, Scarface. Look how many songs reference Jordan Belfort. It's like, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street. So it's... I, I think if, if you influence that stuff, it will so echo throughout culture. Yeah. And that's the only way that I know to do it where they don't have to want to encounter it. They just will encounter it. So mm. it's the concept of don't try to change behavior, try to leverage it. So I know people read books, comic books, they watch TV shows, movies, and they play video games. I know that. And nothing that I say or do is going to change that. Um, because they tap into emotion. They make you feel something. You covet the experience. You pursue it. Um, so... Our whole goal here at Impact Theory is to inset people there. So like this show, like Impact Theory, the main show, Mm -hmm. is to me is closer to um, asking people to change their behavior than it is to truly leveraging behavior. But I know that we can... Um, by filtering out for the people that are already coming and looking for this kind of content, we can build a following. The following is what gives us power as we go pitch these entities to the Hollywood system, which does not have the discipline to tell the right kind of story, in my opinion. They just want to tell any story that sells. And, hey, I get it. We have to do things that sell as well. My thesis is that empowerment is actually the easiest thing on the planet to sell if it's embedded in something else. Mm. So... That's the mission. Wow. That's great. Um, 
I'm not saying, I mean, I'm assuming this isn't Jason's immediate solution to the problem I just presented, uh, but it definitely helps. Uh, and he had mentioned that uh, everybody in your inner circle, um, you should have at least one person that does something better than you. Mm. And to me, that was interesting because I think I know per uh, a lot of people, especially in this city, and some friends that I have who are the exact opposite. They want to be the top dog. They just want to be the person who is, is exceeding at everything um, and doing better than everyone else. But when he said that, I mean, it's something that I think of, but I, I, I think it's important to have to learn from someone close to you and someone mm -hmm. in your inner circle. Um, and it kind of keeps you on your toes and fresh. And I'm wondering what you, what you feel about that. Well, I, I love it. I think that's a really great idea. But I think the, the more important question is to ask, why is that the case for so many people? Mm -hmm. And I think people, I have um, made a name for myself by saying the thing that everyone sort of secretly thinks in the back of their head, but they judge themselves for and so they don't want to say it out loud. Here's the truth. Being the best is awesome. <laughs> and it feels better than being uh, the learner. Okay. Right? That's yeah. just the truth. Yeah. So I have to do all these mental gyrations to reward myself for being the learner. Okay? Mm -hmm. I have to do exactly zero mental gyrations to feel good about somebody saying, damn, <laughs> like you're so good at that. You're the best ever. Right? Yeah. You come out at birth being prepared to like emotionally feel that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. like when Carol Dweck says, reward the process, um, not the result. Right. It's like rewarding the result is where everybody goes. There's something just built into us. We want to be the best. And uh, so historical societies fell prey to what's called Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number says any um, tight-knit group can only be 100 to 150 big, and then it splinters off. Um, I think that's probably about right. And Yes, it's also because um, that's about the number of people that you can have intimate relationships with, about the number of people that you can really remember, a certain amount of history, all that. Um, I think it's also about the number where you will, as a member of that tribe, be better at something than anyone else. Mm. And so you can really shine and feel good about yourself. You find your place in the group where you just feel awesome. Okay. And that's how, like, that's the default setting. That's the water. That's where we all start. I don't have to tell you a lot. It just comes pre-baked into you to want to be the greatest at something, to feel good about that. And so getting outside of that is very, very difficult. So until people acknowledge that that just feels awesome, and so now I know it's a trap. Mm. Okay, my brain has set me up. Millions of years of evolution have moved me towards this moment where I'm going to feel great for that. And so now how do I not fall prey to that? So I'll give it to you in a relationship context. On my tattoo, one of my um, strongest things to my wife is the word commitment. Okay. Because what I had said so early in our relationship was I'm always gonna find other people attractive. You need to get real comfortable with that. Now. I know you're always going to find other people attractive. Now, how do I know that? You're wired to. Mm -hmm. Like, it is an evolutionary thing for you to be attracted to a potential mate. Period. Always. But being a human and having a prefrontal cortex, I know that you also can choose not to act on that and that you can do other things to make sure that you focus on things in our relationship that are totally unique to that shared experience is my personal obsession so that you can stay committed and not act in accordance with that. Now, that's me. I think about that, the power of that, all that. But one of the most exhilarating emotional moments of my life was when uh, an attractive female came up to me. My wife is standing right next to me, asked my wife for permission to pet my abs. 
<laughs> that was fucking awesome. And you were like, right? Yes. I was like, hell yeah. I've told that story so many times because you didn't have to tell me to think that was cool. Uh-huh. Like, you couldn't stop me oh, from yeah, being exactly. like, exactly. And that, if you said it wasn't cool, then you're like, you're lying. That was right? cool. Right? Of course yeah. it was cool. Yeah. So, but until you can acknowledge what a trap that is, <laughs> that you, like, that's how people fall prey to this shit, is like, you've got to be so careful. Just because it's real emotionally doesn't mean that it's advantageous. Yeah. And so really beginning to peel those things apart. So your friend who's in a group and they want to be dominant, it's because it's awesome, mm-hmm. right? It's That shit feels so good. And so, like, I'm not going to judge them. Like, I I totally get it. But inside, my heart is breaking for them because it's a trap. Mm. Now you're never going to move on because here's the reality of being around somebody who's better than you. Like, I, I think of you all the time because you're so good at building a network. You're so good at, like, connecting people and, like, figuring out, like, how you can help them, how they can help you and being strategic and playing the long game. Like, in fact, this is for everybody out there. When the team started pitching me, people in the early days of Inside Quest, I was fucking so hardcore, like, don't fucking pitch this person again. They're absolutely not right for the show. I know what's best for the show. Like, look, we're trying to do something different here. And over time, I began to realize they're so much better than you at this. And they've snuck guests in that you didn't want to interview. And then in the research process, you start going, whoa. Like, this person's actually really interesting. And then they come on set and they blow you away. And I thought, lesson learned. They're better. Let them be better. That's an amazing thing. Do not try to take any pride from, like, knowing what guests to bring on the show. Trust these guys. So now when you guys pitch, I'm like, I don't see what you see in this person. Here's what I see. But if you really feel that this is going to crush, I'm going to do it. Is that absolutely true or That's not? That's true. That's true. And then when you present that, it puts the weight on me. And I think like, okay, maybe they won't crush. And then I backpedal. Right. And I'm just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and but, I, yeah. It, that comes from knowing that, yes, it feels good to believe that I know best. To believe it, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not bravado. It feels awesome to believe that I have the best vision. But it's way more powerful if it's actually true that you have it because then you have leverage if i have to be the best at everything if i actually am the best at everything then we're only going to go as far as my skill set can take Mm -hmm. us but if i can be surrounded by people where i'm the best at some things they're the best at others now we've got this force multiplier effect of we're as good as everyone's best. Mm. And that starts to get really powerful. So you're out there getting better and better by the day at doing what you do. I'm out here getting better and better at what I do every day. Um, and that's something that what I hope becomes the, the enduring core of this company is that each of us are like, that person is best in class at what they do. Because I know people are trying to hire you, right? You told me that the other day. People are trying to like steal you away. So like my secret hope is, because no one's, like I'm not going to win the battle with just money. So I'm hoping that there's this other part, which is you're like, dude, Tom is better than me at some things. And he's out there every day killing himself to keep getting better and better and better at that. But maybe more importantly, he's making room for me to be best in class at what I do. And he's not trying to steal my shine. Mm -hmm. And that to me, like, you wanna know one of the things that I prize in a teammate 
do they want their teammates to shine? Mm. Like, do they mm. actually want sometimes to just sit back and be like, I want this motherfucker to shine. <laughs> and I want to tell other people how they're crushing it, right? Yeah. That, to me, needs to be a core part of what we're doing at Impact Theory, where it's like, it's something we talk about, it's baked into the culture. Like, if you don't want other people to shine, like, you're just not going to fit in here. I don't care if you're the greatest of all time. Like, if you can't sit back and be like, hey, this person shines at this, let's all stop and recognize. Let's stop and recognize that this, com- this company would be fundamentally different and worse if it weren't for their contributions. Because it feels good oh, yeah. to be great. No, that's, uh, wow, that's, that's great. That's, that's an amazing answer. An amazing answer. I love Thank it. You. Um, I'm going to get to a question from Chris Berry. Chris Berry. Chris Berry. Uh, he said, I love the idea of doing a yearly reflection that Jason talked about. What is the way that you like to, ref- oh, wait, what is the way that you like to reflection process for improving something you were leading with your organization? I think the way we facilitate learning from our past really can set the tone for the culture we are establishing or reinforcing. I'm especially interested in facilitating reflection on what we have done in the past to encourage the adoption of a culture of empowerment. Any tips on doing that? Yeah, so from the perspective of a company, that's, that was the framing of the question, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this. I think reflection is absolutely critical. I think waiting to do it yearly is a real mistake. Now, I liked Jason's breakdown. I think it was, I like, I wish, I wonder. Um, So I like that I did this. I wish I had done that. I wonder if I did this, what would happen? And I think that that was really interesting. I've never heard anybody say it like that. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. I am a bigger believer in every day every day and cultivating a crushing sense of guilt when you're not doing it to have a list of the most important things that you could be doing at any time to move towards your goals okay and in that is a built-in mechanism of reflection what what i'm doing now is it actually working and that's what you really have to do and that will allow you to change your strategy like in real time in real time in real time agent smith who just walked in hi agent smith um one of the things that we were talking about the other day is our current strategy with our socials is to push every ball up the hill at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I had been taking so much pride in like how rapidly our ecosystem-wide thing is moving. And then I just started thinking, but how does the world really work? Because I, I was sweating for you, right? Because I thought, God, he has to keep going out to these guests. And I know every time you tell people ecosystem-wide, we're like 250,000. Like that's a big number. But then they're going to go look at their preferred one, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, and they're only going to see, say, 75,000. Yep. And they're going to be like, wait a second, I thought he said 250,000. <laughs> so <laughs> then we're asking them to like go do the math and like uh-huh. add it up. And it, people don't work like that. Yeah. So then Agent Smith and I were like, well, maybe we should collapse all of our efforts down to one. Everything will keep growing as organically as it's going to grow. But in terms of putting all of our time, energy, and resources, like what one do we do so that we get one number up to a point of looking way more powerful when somebody goes to check it out. Um, and I think we decided, what, YouTube? Yeah. That wasn't a very committed answer, which is interesting because <laughs> I know why it's not committed because he wants to test first, respect, that's our dynamic. Um, he wants to test first, make sure that the strategy is going to make sense, and then we'll go. So fire a bullet before you fire a cannonball. Literally, he is the company conscience, uh, which I think is brilliant. That's funny. I, didn't, I can't see him, but I heard his yes, and I pictured him doing this. 
Yeah. That's exactly what he did. <laughs> Literally to a T. That's exactly what he did. You were very on brand, Jared. Very on brand. <laughs> so amazing. So, yeah. Um, you kind of uh, harped on something that he talked about. Yeah. And something that I could jump in real quick and say, this is what I do uh, when it comes to booking. Because, of course, with booking, you're faced with so many challenges trying to get people to come to any show. I don't care how big your show is. Didn't if- you say better to come back as a flatworm than as a booker? Like uh, yeah, if, I've, if reincarnation's a thing. I've used so many different terms uh, with that phrasing. Yes, a homeless person, a flatworm, a dog. Even though I think a dog would be a great life. Um, so yeah. So uh, Jason says, uh, you know, you can hear no so many times, mm. and 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 but just figure out a way to get them to say yes. I mean, yeah, he, remove the excuses. I think yeah, remove like. the excuses. And to me, I mean, again, it's like there, there's always an excuse and people are always going to say no. It is for many, uh, not all, but especially in this business, it's easy for someone to say no and not have to deal right. with, you know, collaborating or doing anything for you or just ignoring you. People do that, too. But you just keep coming and coming until you figure out a creative way for them to say yes. Um, and I'll be the first to admit, sometimes, several times, you've had to remind me about that. I'd come back and be like, yeah, you know, the answer is no for now. And you're like, no, no. You know, <laughs> you've got to figure out a way for them to say yes. Mm. Figure it out. And every time you say that, it hits home. I'm like, man, that's right. And, and that's my philosophy, but I got to get reminded about it. And I think people in general should be reminded that you're going to hear no a lot. But it's easy to lay down and be like, they said no. But no, man, you got to figure out a way mm. creatively f- for them to say yes. So I want to get your thoughts on that. I cannot tell you how game-changing the following game is. And if people would immediately adopt it, it's funny that I have this mug today. So this is the game. No bullshit, what would it take? I love that game so much. And when you actually stop and play it, so take Stephen King. I am hell-bent to get Stephen King on this show. You've been a long-standing ally. It's not an easy process. And so I started saying, all right, what do we need to do? Now, I know that the no bullshit answer is I need to, my thing is if you get me in the room, I can close. It's getting me in the room that's hard. So if we can get me in the room, the reason is I meet people from a place of genuine appreciation and maybe more importantly, knowledge. I know them. I, Stephen King legitimately changed the course of my life, which I know he's going to want to hear, right? That feels good. Mm -hmm. Going back to the things that nobody has to tell you to feel good about, right? For him to know that he changed my life, that because of that, I've, I've succeeded at a very high level, but that he was the, that first lead domino of getting me to read. So I know that the no bullshit answer is I need to stand outside the gate at his house. Like that's the truth. And until I do that, I have not done everything in my power um, to do it because in five minutes with him, I can get him to understand I know so much about your artistic world. Like I've read so many of your works. They've had deep impact on me that they become a core part of who I am. So, but I said, the first step is let me write him a letter. Get him a letter. Mm -hmm. So I wrote him a letter and I made so many references subtly in the 
language of the letter that only he would understand. In fact, you even pinged me and said, "Yeah, I was like, All right, this, is this is cool. I'll get it to him." But out of curiosity, <laughs> why Psy? S A I. Now, anybody that's read the Dark Tower series knows exactly why uh, I addressed it to him as Psy, um, Psy King, and. There were other references and all that kind of stuff. And I, I literally had to draw back because I was like, you want to seem like a fan without seeming like a crazy fan. <laughs> so I was like, I tried to walk that line. But no bullshit, what would it take, right? Like, to what extreme would I have to go? Another thing that I could do, that when I'm standing, like, this is how the game is played. Imagine when I'm standing outside his window, I'm on a call here, and I just say into the phone, now. <laughs> <laughs> and three of the people that he respects most in the world call him uh-huh. and they just say, look out your window. And he looks out his window and is like, oh my God, there's like some creepy fan outside. <laughs> and he's holding the jukebox above his head. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then the person on the phone says, you need to talk to that kid for exactly four minutes and 30 seconds. I'm telling you it's worth it. I can't tell you why, but you need to go do that. We could make that happen, right? We could get to three people that are important in his life that he would take the phone call if it rang. And it's about finding, okay, who are those three people? How do I add value to their lives? How do I really, and I could keep going. But that's the game. That's no bullshit. What would it take? You get to that thing where you're like, if that happened, I know it would work. And then you back into, like, how would we actually do that? Because I know if I'm standing outside his gate, he's going to think it's creepy as fuck. (laughs) So it's like, now, okay, if I know that, but I know I have to get in the room, into a room where he doesn't necessarily want me to, like, I need people to vouch for me. Now, it's a lot easier to get other people that are tangential to him, their satellites, where they don't have a fan base. So going and being meaningful to them would probably be a lot easier than going directly to him because there's a lot of people clamoring to be meaningful to him. So, and you just start chunking the problem down like that that's really important i mean that's what we did at quest how do you get people to eat healthy make them want to eat healthy Mm, like mm -hmm. make them actually the act of eating that food triggers all the same dopamine release and all that that eating a candy bar would do i think that would work yes i know that would work um how do you get people to change their frame of reference even if they don't want to have the things that they're already consuming the characters that they look up to be people that have an empowering belief system so that they just start adopting the phrases and the quotes and all that that's empowering mm. versus the things that are um like there was a, a i don't watch tv now so i can't tell you but there was a real time when i was watching um comedies and stuff on tv where it was like they saw themselves as doofuses, dumbasses, um, lazy people that the man was holding them down. And so you just sort of quietly adopt all those beliefs and not even really realize it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like having to inject into popular culture way more empowering belief systems. All right. We have three minutes. <clears throat> and I figure there's no way we can get through this without talking about uh, Michael Jordan. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, it's one of his heroes. Uh, many people see value in understanding Michael Jordan's psyche. Uh, One of the things that he mentioned that stood out to me was, uh, you know, the Jordan era was the first time we saw the athlete emerging as a brand. Um, So I I guess uh, talk about the significance of that. Well, now you're talking the, the significance of anyone as a brand is about what that person represents. So this goes back to as a brand, whether you're creating a personal brand or whether you're creating a protein bar, whether you're creating um, an imprimatur on your studio, that imprimatur, Disney, Impact Theory, Coca-Cola, Nike, like 
Whatever that thing is, it needs to stand for something. Apple, great example. It needs to stand for something. You have to transcend your products. So if Michael Jordan's product is that position, he was a point guard. Yeah. So if his product is entertaining people through the position of point guard on basketball, he's got to transcend that. And so what he came to represent was excellence. Now, once he represents excellence, now Nike can say merely having him in our shoes makes our shoes associated to excellence. Okay. And that's how that game works. Mm. And when you can make your brand stand for something other than your products, you can bring different products in and out, but your brand still stands for something. So that's why I just do not understand how every studio on the planet is not trying to emulate, not copy Disney. Like we're not going to copy Disney. We do not stand for the magic of childhood. That's not what we're going to be about. <laughs> we stand for empowerment, right? That's yeah. it, period, plain and mm -hmm. simple. But I look at how Disney pulled it off. So first of all, he is a human being stood up front. That's what he stood for. He stood for like that middle America, that small town American vibe, the being able to leave your door unlocked, mm -hmm. the, the beauty, the trustworthiness of human beings, the optimism, the, the sort of Pollyanna-ism Pollyanna of life, right? That everything that he did fed in through that lens, right? You just knew that his movies were gonna have uh, moral, that they were gonna be about doing good and being good, um, all of it. Like it, you were never gonna be surprised by a character who secretly gets ahead by being a jerk. Never, never going to happen in a Disney movie. The, the person who's a jerk is always going to get their comeuppance in the mm -hmm. end. So when you think about what impact theory means and how it's going to transcend, like we're not comic books, we're not TV shows, we're not movies, we're empowerment mm -hmm. and the brand will always stand for that. That's why we can do a show like this. That's why we can do impact theory. But we're never, literally, if we brought somebody on, let's say John Paul DeJoria, who was amazing. And oh God, when you watch this episode, you're like, why can't there be more people like this? Mm -hmm. But if, if in the end he was like, Tom, look, I'm just going to be really real with you. I got to where I am by, I just take advantage of people. <laughs> you, just, you just have to be prepared to step on people's necks. It's just the, the way of the world and you have to be prepared to do it. I'm not releasing that episode, <laughs> right? Unless like in it somehow I can flip it, convince them, whatever in real yeah. time. Like I'm just, I'm not releasing an episode where it appears that I or us as a studio are backing that mentality. Mm, no yeah, fucking yeah, way. Yeah, that, yeah. that is so a, not what I believe. And it's so off brand that it then confuses the mm, brand. Right? So, mm. um, there are a lot of rumors about, Jordan, whether his hiatus into baseball was because he was actually secretly gambling and all this stuff. And people didn't want to tarnish his, his reputation. And I don't know that that's true, by the way. And, and let's just assume that it's not. I don't, I want him to be exactly what he appears to represent, which is excellence. Um, it's important to have that. It's important to have a beacon that stands for that. And that's why I think people freaked out so much about Tiger Woods is because they wanted him as a mm -hmm. brand mm -hmm. to represent something. Now, as a human being, it's very difficult. And it's one of the reasons that I, I refuse to not ever swear because mm. I believe in the power of that language. And I get it. I am diminishing the size of my audience by doing so. And it's something I think a lot about and like have to be very careful, but I don't ever want me as a person to represent something I'm not actually. So people like Tiger's brand could have allowed for, this is going to sound crazy. It could allowed, have allowed for infidelity, whatever he wanted, because 
You define who you are. Mm. You define what you stand for. But mm. if your vibe is going to be like all wholesome all mm -hmm. the time, and part of the reason that I swear is to make it clear, I do not stand for like all wholesome all the time. Like that's <laughs> not me, right? Um, whatever you're going to define your brand as, like you have to hold true to that. Yeah. Otherwise you confuse your brand and then people don't know what the fuck it is um, and, and it, it diminishes it. That makes perfect sense. It's like if Marilyn Manson finally decided like, hey, you know what? I'm going to come back and wear a priest outfit. Or <laughs> come back and wear a priest outfit, but now you have to be completely consistent. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. You can't ever deviate. You can't go back and like confuse it That's all. True. You can change your brand at any time. You may fall, find, though, that your audience falls off at that point. So because now you have to reestablish, redefine, rebuild. But the one thing that I think is absolutely paramount for longevity is reinvention. That's the only way, right? So, yeah. and, and that's something I think about us as a studio is while I don't, I can't fathom, I will ever believe that the way to a fulfilled life is something that has anything to do with something other than empowerment. But if I did, cool, I would reinvent. But even within the genre of knowing that everything we're always going to do is always going to be around empowerment, we're going to have to reinvent. And we will look very different five years from now than we look now, certainly very different 10, 20 years. And when I think about how long it's going to take us to really overtake Disney as a, a cultural centerpiece, the one really creating the water, it's going to take a long, long time. Mm. So we're going to have to constantly reinvent in that process. I agree. I agree with that. Uh, well, we are out of time. Uh, there you have it. Lots of deep thoughts out of the Jason Maiden episode. Yeah. I certainly learned a lot from these talks with Tom, so I hope you guys did. And Wow. Boom. Thank you guys so much for watching. This was an awesome episode. Jason Maiden is incredible. And by the way, if you haven't already noticed, I am wearing our latest addition to the Impact Theory store, which is the Impact Theory Elemental t-shirt. Be sure to check it out. And also, we'll give away, for the first person that can accurately tell us why it's 119 and why it's 1.417, uh, we will give you a free Impact Theory Elemental shirt. So uh, drop that in. Hit us up at connectedimpacttheory.com with your answers, and we will be picking a winner. So thank you guys so much for joining us today. This is a weekly show, so if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.